0: This series will shine a light on the shifting dynamics of governmental entities and the ensuing changes in economic or political policies, laws, and regulations that can have a critical impact on the health and future of your business.
1: Hello, I'm Dan Sennett, a partner here at Holland & Knight in the National Security Practice. I help both traditional and non-traditional defense contractors who are looking to either expand their business in the DOD or help them navigate current DOD contractor regulatory requirements. Prior to joining Holland and Knight last year, I was the Republican Staff Director on the House Armed Services Committee. Spent about six years on the committee and prior to that I was in the U.S. Army for about 21, serving as an armor officer and then eventually as a judge advocate. One of my final assignments was actually here in the Pentagon, serving as a liaison between the Army and Congress. I'm joined today by Marissa Serafino from our Public Policy and Regulation Practice Group. Marissa, tell us a little bit about your background and what you're currently doing at the firm.
0: Thanks, Dan. I am Marissa Serafino, as Dan mentioned. Uh, I'm an associate in the firm. I joined the Public Policy and Regulation Group about five years ago. I'm also on the national security team here at Holland Knight, handling NDAA, helping companies with insider threat issues, etc. And uh, before joining the firm, I was with Senator Shaheen on the Hill for about four and a half years. Um, And I handled energy, environment, and appropriations, which uh, very much led into NDAA work.
1: That's great. So we're excited to be working on a series of podcasts. Uh, we're going to break down the FY22 National Defense Authorization Act over the, over the next few podcasts. Uh, and so I'll be joined by partners from throughout the firm that specialize in the many different areas of law and policy that the NDAA covers. And we'll also talk about some of the associated major laws that are, are being passed or considered in Congress right now. Um, this week, though, we're going to focus on general themes in the FY22 NDAA, which was signed by the president on December 27th of last year. Isn't that right, Marissa? That's right.
0: So this this year, and like others, other years, the NDAA has been this must-pass piece of legislation. But before we get into that, Dan, would you mind just giving our listeners a general overview and reminding us about what the NDAA
1: is Sure. Uh, National Defense Authorization Act is a yearly authorization of funding and policy for the entire Department of Defense. It also includes um, national security programs within the Department of Energy. So think uh, National Nuclear Security Administration, the NNSA. In general, in order for the DOD to spend money, um, Congress must both authorize and appropriate the funding. So the NDAA is the authorization piece of that. Uh, and then we've got the defense appropriations bill, which we're hearing potentially will probably be passed in late March, early April, and that's the appropriation of that of that same funding. So the bill is written and negotiated by the House and Senate Armed Services Committee. Those are the committees of jurisdiction for the authorizers. Uh, it's normally pretty bipartisan, actually, and it's one of the few bills that still goes through what's called regular order. So that's when. Think back to Schoolhouse Rock and how a bill becomes a law. That is the traditional way in which a bill becomes a law. So the bill originates within the committee. A markup of the bill is then held in which members can submit amendments. And then after it passes out of the committee, it goes to the whole house for consideration of their amendments. And then it's passed. Now the Senate, meanwhile, is doing the exact same thing and going through that that same process with their version of the bill. And when both the House and the Senate are completed with their versions, they meet in what's called conference to reconcile the differences and come up with a final bill that's passed by Congress and then sent to the president for signature. The NDA is considered as Marissa mentioned, must pass legislation. It's been passed every year for the past 61 years. And I'm not aware of any other legislation that has that long of a record. And and mostly it's attributable, I think, to the bipartisan nature of the legislation and the importance of national security and making sure that we're taking care of our service members. As a result, you may see provisions in the bill that are not purely defense related. That's because members who have other priorities understand that if they can get their bill attached to the NDAA, it's gonna ultimately become law.
0: So what are some examples of non-defense related or non-domain provisions that end up in the NDAA?
1: So this year's bill has a a few of them. There's Homeland Security matters. There's an entire section on uh, financial services matters. Um, There's Department of the Interior matters. and, And some of those have to do with Department of Defense property, others don't. And then in one of our future podcasts, here's an interesting one, we'll be talking about semiconductors and the CHIPS Act. The CHIPS Act was originally authorized in a previous NDAA, and now what's being considered under USICA and American Compete's is actual funding for that authorization for the CHIPS Act.
0: So the NDAA is one of the most important vehicles that we have. I think it's an opportunity to get legislation passed. So in terms of the FY 2022 NDAA bill, which authorizes $768.2 billion in defense spending, which is a 5% increase over the previous year, and also $25 billion more than what President Biden requested in his annual budget, Dan, could you give us a high-level overview of the defense-related activities that are covered in the previous year's NDAA?
1: Sure. So, it covers all DOD activities. So, everything from, I think, operation and maintenance funding, that's the day-to-day operation and running of the services to acquisition of major weapons systems to military personnel matters, like the running of the military health system and military pay for service members to research and development of emerging technology and cybersecurity solutions. It also covers national security programs within DOE, which I mentioned, namely, an NSA, which is responsible for the US nuclear weapons arsenal. Um, in addition to funding and policies related to military readiness, the bill is, as I mentioned, pretty broad, and there are both defense, non-defense things, it provides policies related to strategic competition with China and Russia, which we'll be talking a little bit in a, about in a, uh, a future podcast. Environmental remediation and security, government contracting, emerging technology, you name it.
0: So in terms of the major investments that we saw in this year's bill, what's new? What should we look out for in the future?
1: You know, one of the major issues, and you alluded to it in this year's bill, was the DOD top line funding level. The president's budget request was for around $715 billion, and that would have represented a 1.6% increase over the previous year. But back in 2018, there was a bipartisan National Defense Strategy Commission that found in order to keep pace with readiness and continue to modernize the military, we needed to see a 3 to 5% annual budget increase increase. Above inflation. So it would be 3 to 5% plus whatever the inflation rate is. Therefore, in this past year's bill, an amendment was introduced to add an additional $25 billion to the top line. And that was to get us to that 5%. Now that passed on a bipartisan basis in both HASC and SASC uh, and ultimately ended up in the final bill. So you may be wondering where did that additional money go? Much of it went to the services to fund unfunded requirements, and quite a bit goes to modernization efforts, um, development and acquisition of emerging technology. So I think that's going to be a major emphasis in this coming year as, as they look to spend this money.
0: And you're going to do another segment specifically on emerging tech, correct?
1: That, that is correct. Yeah, you can be looking forward to that.
0: Great. So let's talk about some of the other areas covered in the bill. What about acquisition reform?
1: Okay, this is an interesting one because each year for the past several years, the NDAA has included provisions designed to improve the acquisition process. Uh, And this year is no different. As you know, navigating the Department of Defense acquisition process can be pretty challenging. Uh, There are a lot of rules. There's the FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulation, and then there's also a DFAR, which is the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation, specifically targeting DOD. And, And there has been Uh, You know, a lot of desire on the part of both DOD and Congress to make sure that commercial suppliers and small businesses and medium-sized businesses and non-traditional defense contractors are able to kind of navigate that process and and sell their wares. We'll be talking about some of these initiatives in a future podcast, but I just want to highlight a couple of main ones. A few years back, Congress put in law a preference for DOD contracts. To where possible, make sure that they were firm fixed price contracts instead of cost plus contracts. So the difference really is in a firm fixed price contract, that would be like if the government wanted to buy a bunch of Apple iPhones, right? They would pay whatever, $800 per iPhone, and that would get them the entire completed product. There's another method, which is cost plus contracting, where the government will reimburse the company for research and development and labor and materials and all these other things. And they will, on top of that, add in an additional percentage, typically 15%, but it can vary, for profit. In that latter scenario of a cost plus contract, it's really the government that's bearing all the risk of research and development and potential failures, etc. We're on a firm fixed price contract. Once you have it, if the cost of materials goes up um, or if there's a labor shortage, that's all going to have to be, that contract still has to be fulfilled. And so it's the risk is shifted to the commercial market. So that was kind of the thinking a while ago. There there was a reflection that a lot of technical innovation was coming from private industry. And then in order to leverage that innovation, DOD should be purchasing products that are fully designed and developed by those private companies instead of DOD bearing that uh, cost and risk of R&D. We'll see what impact removing this preference for firm fixed price contracts will have on this approach coming in the future. So that'll be a That'll be something we'll have to take a look at. Um, Last year's bill also had a major effort to reorganize the defense acquisition statutes. Prior to this effort, the laws that governed defense acquisitions were scattered all over the code, uh, meaning that small and medium sized businesses like the ones we talked about before, trying to do business with DOD had a real tough time understanding everything they needed to do in order to to, uh, get contracts. Uh, Putting these authorities all in one place in the U.S. Code makes it easier to understand all of those requirements. Now, that's a big effort, and this year's bill continues that process of implementing that reorganization.
0: That's really interesting, and I think a lot of our clients would be interested to hear more about that. In terms of let's go into emerging tech and some other technology issues here. So the department has excitingly placed a renewed emphasis on hypersonic capabilities after recent revelations that the Chinese are more advanced in this area than previously thought. What does the bill contain in terms of hypersonics?
1: And I think we're gonna see a continued emphasis on this definitely from the Department of Defense's perspective. Um, There is $300 million for hypersonics R&D $438 $438 million for hypersonic prototyping, $111 million for hypersonic engineering and manufacturing development. And, and then there's also uh, an additional pot of money for hypersonic defense capabilities. So how do we defend against attacks from uh, hypersonic weapons? So there's about 300 and close to $310 million to develop a hypersonic defense capability. Now that's almost $62 million more than requested in the president's budget request. And then finally, there's uh, $51 million for joint hypersonic technology development. So that'll be one where there's uh, an awful lot of emphasis and uh, a lot of money that's um, being dedicated to that. Another one I would highlight for you is cyber There's about 40 cyber related provisions in this bill. And that's not unusual. Every year there are a lot of cyber related provisions. A a number of these provisions are designed to boost cyber capabilities and operations at federal agencies and across the Department of Defense. So uh, just a few that I'll mention. There's of course a requirement that DOD provide a report on how cybersecurity maturity model certification. So that's CMMC, which a lot of folks obviously are familiar with and um, are concerned about when is that going to be implemented and how is it going to be implemented. So there is a a report in a reporting requirement that DOD provide information about how that CMMC compliance is going to affect small businesses. And I think that's really an acknowledgement. some of the challenges that the private industry is facing in, in um, navigating CMMC. There's another provision that requires DoD to establish an executive agent for the DoD wide procurement of cyber data products and services. What we've seen over the last few years is each one of the services and even lower each you know um, individual units acquiring their own cyber data products and services, and so there it can be disjointed. And so they're really trying to get a handle on that and make sure that it is more consolidated. The acquisition strategy is more consolidated. And then there's an additional provision that requires each of the services to identify legacy applications and software and eliminate any that are no longer required. And that's along the same lines to try and clean up a lot of the variants that we see. And then China, and and that is uh, great power competition or the new term strategic competition, which the Department of Defense is now using. China is a big part of this bill. There are several provisions designed to better compete with China, many of which will impact how U.S. companies do business with China and reshoring manufacturing capabilities back to the U.S. Uh, We'll be covering that specifically in a follow-on podcast. And then I'll just leave you with one final one, which is um, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Bill has several provisions on AI and machine learning aimed at leveraging solutions from commercial vendors. And we'll have an emerging technology podcast in the future that'll cover both R and d and AI and machine learning.
0: There's a lot to unpack there, and I think we'll get into some of that in future episodes as you mentioned. But one last um, question uh, that we'll leave the listeners with. So for businesses that are seeking or are currently a defense contractor, what should these businesses take away from last year's NDAA?
1: Yeah, I think this NDAA, I think, recognizes that now more than ever, private industri- industry is the primary source of innovation. And so you see that in acquisition strategies and acquisition reform. uh, And you see that in a lot of other areas that really we are more than ever relying on non-traditional defense contractors to be able to provide that innovation. There also remains a bipartisan commitment to funding the Department of Defense to keep it competitive with China and Russia. And then finally, the bill continues with a recent theme of encouraging the reshoring of manufacturing and mining back to the U.S. and and we'll be touching on that as well. But Marissa, any parting thoughts that you have on NDAA and, and on our series?
0: Just to say that this year's process will be interesting as the processes typically are. I think we're pushed back a little bit because of the appropriation season, but I'm sure many of the things you've mentioned, Dan, will continue to be trends in the NDAA, and we'll see more of them. So excited to hear the rest of your episodes.
1: Great. Well, thanks so much, Marissa, for being here. And we look forward to talking with you on future podcasts. And for now, have a great day. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Eyes on Washington podcast, brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. For more information on our Public Policy and Regulation group, please visit hklaw.com/ppr.